Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everybody, I'm Megyn Kelly, and welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. So glad you're here with me. So glad you're listening. We're doing audio for now. We may add some video at some point. You know, the audio is kind of more intimate just to start with. Um, And I thought I'd just start by telling you why I'm here, right? Like, what am I doing here? And the reason really is I am deeply concerned. I'm concerned about what's happening to our country, to our media, and to us. You know, the the press, of which I've been a part for many years now, is unlike anything I've ever seen before. I feel like it has abandoned any semblance of objectivity. And just having the luxury of being just a consumer for the past couple of years, it's as plain as the nose on your face. And it's really frustrating. You know, I feel like the COVID pandemic really brought it home because like you, I was sitting at my house thinking, oh, wow, you know, like I really need to have honest information about this. And oh, wait, I trust no one. (laughs) You know, the truth is I didn't trust Trump to give it to me straight. And I didn't trust the media to give it to me straight either. And I actually sent out a tweet saying something like that in some some of the sort of mainstream elite journalists who I know DM'd me saying, what are you saying? How could you possibly say that? Why, why would you not trust the media? You know, which I just laughed at, you know, what do you mean? How can I not trust the media? Well, I don't because most of the media today expresses fealty to one side or the other, to, to Trump or to destroying Trump, right? And now it's, it's fealty to the toxic religion of wokeness, you know, policing people's words and their thoughts. And I just thought, you know what? I need to get it back out there. I need to create a show that I control in which my only fealty will be to the audience and to the truth. So that's why I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of the news today. And I hope to be a place that you can come for information that you trust, right? That you, you know I'm not in the, in the bag for either side or for anybody and, and a place in which opinions even heterodox opinions can be expressed um, freely and we can debate ideas, any ideas, right? And that you guys are sophisticated enough and smart enough to handle it. So we are not about the silencing of viewpoints here at this show. And we hope you'll stay along with us for the ride. This is the part of the show where I have to read an ad or two, and it's the reason you get to get the show for free. So you have to stick with me through this. And it's the very first time I've ever done it. So you should really stay tuned. Um, my executive producer, Steve Krakauer, is with me. And so, you know, we'll see how it goes, Steve. I could completely screw it up. No, this is exciting. Let's, let's, let's pay the bills. Right. Okay. And, you know, we only selected ad companies that we actually believed in. Uh, and we rejected a bunch we didn't. So you know that, you know, it's legit. Uh, and the very first smart advertiser uh, who we decided to partner with is, listen to this, Pure Talk. Have you heard of them? So here's the question. Who is your wireless wireless provider? Do you even know? AT&T, is it Verizon? Is it T-Mobile? So what if I told you that you could be saving over 400 bucks a year without having to sacrifice your service, your coverage, or anything? You got to sign up with Pure Talk. It's on the exact same network as one of the big carriers. It gives you the same bars and same service, but it is half the price. Now, I got to be honest, Steve Krakauer, I, I had not heard of Pure Talk before this. 
No, it's awesome. They share, I think, our vision of no corporate BS, which is which is cool. Well, exactly. Because when I was looking into them, it says that they don't play the same games as like all the big carriers who have to sell you all the quote unlimited data as though this is going to be the greatest thing you've ever seen when you don't really need that much, right? Like you want to be in charge of how much you get. So these guys, Pure Talk, they give you unlimited talk, unlimited text, and two gigs of data for 20 bucks a month. No, it's, that's it's, not it's bad. a great deal. That, that's no fluff. That's actually good. Also, their customer service is right here in the United States. Now we all we all love that, right? You're going to be able to get through. You're going to be able to have a good conversation. And it is second to none. You look at consumer affairs, Pure Talk, number one, number one rated wireless company. And the best part of all, their CEO is a vet, a U.S. veteran who gets what it means to serve his country. So check them out. I love it. It will be the easiest and best decision you make all day. Get unlimited talk, text, plus two gigs of data, all for 20 bucks a month from your cell phone, dial pound 250 and say Megan Kelly, and you will save an additional 50% off on your first month. That's pound 250, say Megan Kelly, pure talk, simply smarter, wireless. Boom. How'd I do, Steve? That, that was perfect. That was it. Pure talk will be very happy, I think. Awesome. Yeah, I'll find out. Good. I'm happy with them. I'd love to support a veteran and save money at the same time. It's a great deal. And now, without further ado, our very first guest here on The Megan Kelly Show, Glenn Greenwald. You may or may not know him, uh, but he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a really interesting guy. He, he came from the left, right? Like he was more aligned, I would say, with progressives. And then through a series of life events, started to realize mm, maybe he wasn't where he thought he was. He's been fearless in his reporting, and he will take on anybody on any charge. And I think you're going to find him and his discussion about the media in 2020 really interesting. Glenn Greenwald, thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's great to be with you, Megan. You first splashed on onto the scene in my world um, when you broke one of the biggest stories of the past decade. Uh, you were working for The Guardian and you broke the story of the NSA spying scandal. The whole Edward Snowden and are they listening to us? And it turned into, well, we're only collecting the metadata of people's phone calls. We're not actually listening to the phone calls. And so people, you know, maybe maybe don't remember the whole thing. But you were the guy who broke that story for which Edward Snowden is basically still on the run. Um, He fled to Russia. And I just want to go back because I wonder when you get a scoop as big as that and, and he's coming to you and sort of saying, this is what I'd like you to do. Was it exciting? Were you scared? What do you remember feeling? Yeah, it was all of those things. I mean, I had prior to his coming to me, you know, he anonymously emailed me at the end of 2012. I had spent two or three years or even a little longer, maybe working as a journalist, columnist, blogger, concerned about the NSA, writing a lot about the NSA, when not a lot of people were. And it was very difficult work because it was so opaque. There was very little we knew about what was happening within this agency and the little tidbits we were getting were making me very concerned as somebody very devoted to privacy rights and limited government um, that probably the invasiveness was much greater than we knew. But it was impossible to demonstrate that. So when he came to me as somebody who said, not only do I have the only top secret documents ever to leak from this agency, I have an enormous number of them, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not more, 
I knew on the one hand it was going to be this unique journalistic opportunity, kind of like the story of a generation, to be able to shine light on the most secretive agency within the world's most powerful government. But I also knew that precisely for that reason, that there had never been a leak like this, probably going back to the Pentagon Papers, but because it was from the NSA, this was even more sensitive. Um, and because of my position in the media ecosystem, right, I was with The Guardian, but I was kind of like a columnist of The Guardian only for about eight months. I wasn't at The New York Times or The Post. It was a riskier position to be in to do a story this sensitive and this threatening to the U.S. government. And then Snowden, you know, the first thing he wanted before he was really willing to do anything was for me to fly halfway across the world to Hong Kong, where he had gone in order to safely work with the journalist. Um, which had a lot of intrigue to it, had a lot of tension involved. We didn't know what the U.S. government knew. We didn't know what the Chinese government or the local Hong Kong authorities knew about what he was doing or why he was there. So everything was under cloak and dagger. And obviously, when you're getting hundreds of thousands of top secret documents from a military agency within the U.S. government, it's a very risky thing to do. So sure, I was definitely tense and anxious, but also, you know, that's why I went into journalism in the first place was to do those kind of stories. He's with Putin now uh, in in Russia, but I'm sure would like to come back and is pushing for a pardon, would like a pardon. And Trump actually just said he, he'll he consider it. Um, you know, what what happened this month was the Ninth Circuit ruled that program to be illegal. I mean, it. it Snowden was effectively justified or vindicated in some sense because the program was ruled illegal and his conduct was discussed favorably by the court. But, you know, I don't know if they're just all neocons or what, but the people who really are still upset with him, like my old pal Mark Thiessen of of the Washington Post and, and AEI would say, you know, he endangered, he endangered people. He's not a whistleblower because he should have taken it to lawmakers. You know, he, he hurt people who are helping the United States, our allies. And this all boiled down to us after 9-11 needing to see where the terrorists and who the terrorists were calling. And, you know, they looked at the metadata only. They didn't look at your private phone calls, which doesn't hurt anybody if they just see what numbers are out there. Right. I mean, first of all, I think there's this very interesting split on the right that this reveals of people who kind of started off as 9-11 war on terror warriors and remained that. But there's a big part of the Republican Party, obviously led by Trump, right? When he ran in 2016, he ran in opposition to the war in Iraq and to like general notions of imperialism. Snowden's biggest advocates right now aren't just the ACLU, but Senator Rand Paul and Congressman Matt Gates, people, Thomas Massey, who are saying that he deserves a pardon, that he's a hero. So I think there's this split on the right that recognizes that we allow the government to get too big. I mean, one of the philosophies of right-wing politics in the United States has always been we need to protect individual liberty from incursions by a powerful central government that can invade our lives in too extreme of a way. And having them even, let's set aside the debate about whether they're really listening to our calls, because there's a lot of evidence that they are. But even if they're only listening to, quote, just our metadata, think how much that reveals about you if people know who you call, right? Like. You're a woman and you're considering an abortion, you call an abortion clinic. You don't really need to know what you say on that call. You just need to know that you called that abortion clinic or you call a drug counseling hotline or a suicide hotline or an HIV specialist or you're talking to someone who's not your spouse late at night. Metadata is incredibly revealing to create a picture about who you are. Why should the government know that about us unless we're doing something that a court says justifies them being suspicious about us? That was never supposed to be the role of the government. That's why the Fourth Amendment exists, right? So 
it's one of those kind of controversies, Megan, where it's very unique in that a lot of the support we got came from the right and then came from the left. But there was also a lot of the opposition came from the part of the right that you described, but then also part of the left that was angry that we were making President Obama look bad. It was one of the like least partisan controversies that has existed in years. And you see that to this very day. A lot of liberals hate Snowden. They think he's a Kremlin agent or whatever. Um, whereas it's a lot of conservatives who care about individual rights and limited government who are his biggest proponents. Well, I think people can understand that there, in a way, is a sliding scale. You know, when you're within a year or two of a massive terrorist attack on domestic soil, I think most people are willing to shift the balance a bit on their civil liberties to letting the government have more power and do what it needs to do to, to stop another attack. But then, you know, the, the more time that passes, the less tolerant I think the American people will be because it's it's not necessarily the, the solution long term. And so, you know, I think now is a good time to have the debate about how we feel about this guy and, and what should happen, you know, with him. Um, I don't know. I think certainly Republicans are willing to have that that debate now. The, I think the biggest objection will be what what message does it send to others if he gets a pardon? You right. know, other. I mean, the reality, be... though, you know, he has been punished, right? Like he's been he, he didn't choose to be in Russia. He was trying to transit through Russia on his way to Latin America. And they, you know, the Obama State Department invalidated his passport. He couldn't leave. Um, so not like he chose to be in Russia. It's a country with whom, with which he has no connection, doesn't speak the language. He's been separated from his family for seven years from his own country. Um, that's a pretty big price to pay, you know, seven years of exile. So even if you think that he should be punished, notwithstanding that he exposed illegal and unconstitutional acts on the part of the government, which seems like a weird thing to say about somebody who did, but even if you think he should be punished, he kind of has been. Mm-hmm. You, because the if Trump wants to pardon him, not that I don't know if Trump even thinks about you know PR and how it gets covered in, in this day and age, but you'd need some PR cover for why it's just and and the time in exile is probably a decent one. You know, I look at that now just you know from the perspective of 2020, and I that is fearless journalism. I mean, that is truly fearless journalism on your part. That was a huge story. You got a Pulitzer Prize, so I am not alone in my thinking. Um, but to me, it's so funny, Glenn, because I, I think that's what most of the mainstream journalists think they're doing now. They think they're little mini Glenn Greenwalds and that they're out there exposing the truth, speaking truth to power. You know, the Washington Post with democracy dies in darkness, which I always laugh at because I'm like, well, I don't remember you, you know, with a democracy dies in darkness when Barack Obama had his pen in his phone and was issuing these executive orders every other week. But OK. So what I mean, what's your take on this sort of, you know, resistance journalism and adherence to a cause at at all costs going on today? It re- I really find it so repellent um, for so many reasons. You know, first of all, the Obama administration was probably the single most menacing administration when it came to press freedoms in decades. Um, just, you know, as one example, they prosecuted more sources and whistleblowers under the Espionage Act, this 1917 statute enacted by Woodrow Wilson to criminalize dissent over the U.S. involvement in World War One, than all previous administrations combined. And very few people in the media, you know, where was the Washington Post changing its motto to democracy dies in darkness? There were some journalists saying, look, this is a huge threat to investigative journalism. What's happening, this kind of threat to our sources, as, as you know, your colleague, James Rosen, the Obama Justice Department under Eric Holder subpoenaed not just his phone records, but his parents in order to find out who his source was for a story. 
Um, I couldn't leave Brazil for a year and a, almost a year and a half during that Senate reporting because the Justice Department was saying, if you leave Brazil, there's a good chance we're going to arrest you. Well, at least subpoena you, but we're probably going to arrest you. So that's number one is there were all kinds of very grave and real threats to press freedom taking place during the Obama administration. And there was no hashtag resistance or media denunciations, except in very small sectors of the media, which is why I don't take very seriously what they're saying now. Secondly, if you look at what they claim are the attacks on press freedom, it's usually things like Trump posted some insult some infantile insult about like chuck todd and wolf blitzer or you know mean said tweets. something mean to jim acosta yeah mean tweets um and these that is not a, a threat to press freedom you know like i did reporting all last year in brazil and the government the president himself threatened repeatedly to imprison me and they actually tried to indict me that's an attack on press freedom being insulted by trump on twitter is not an attack on press freedom Here's the question. What does COVID-19 have to do with losing your home? A lot of bad stuff has happened thanks to COVID-19. A lot. One thing you're probably not worried about is losing your home. Um, But the problem is that the FBI just reported that since the virus struck, cybercrime, cybercrime, Steve, is up 75%. Another problem with coronavirus. So you're thinking, all right, well, then like I shouldn't put my password in. I shouldn't put my credit card in when I order stuff online at the Gap or whatever. It's worse than that because the legal title to your home is online now. And they they call the crime home title theft. And apparently it's everywhere. It's not like they can't get the bricks and mortar, (laughs) but they can represent to others, Steve, that they own what you think you own. And that pays benefits for them. Right. Right. Not 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 ideal. No. So it's cyber criminals. They find the title to your home online. You probably didn't even know it was there, but it is. They forge your signature on a quick claim deed. I feel like I'm back in law school. The quick claim deed. And then they refile as the new owner of your home. You're off the title. Oh, great. They destroy you by taking out loans against your home. That's how they get it. So they get loans thanks to look at my big home. Look, you can you can cash this in if I don't pay you. They steal the cash. They stick you with the payments. So you may not even know until you get the late payment or a foreclosure notice on your home. That's how people are finding out. Anyway, this can all be solved by home title lock. They will protect your home's legal title. Your home, as you know, is your most valuable asset. It's your safe haven. And home title lock will put a virtual barrier around your home's title. The instant they detect tampering, they shut it down. Shut it down, Steve. So here's the story. First things first, you go to HomeTitleLock.com. You register your address to see if you're already a victim. Let's hope not. Then you use code radio for 30 free days of protection. Code radio at HomeTitleLock.com. First of all, there's a profit model to it, right? Like the New York Times was really struggling financially and became a really profitable institution by turning oh, they all were. They, into- they all were. Just as an aside, let me tell you, in the at the end of Obama's uh, second term, I was at the White House uh, Christmas party. And, you know, they invite the journalists for one of those. And I saw Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC. And I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, and I quote, I am on a sinking ship known as MSNBC. And I kind of laughed. It showed some self-awareness. And Trump saved them. He saved them, among other outlets. He, I mean, yeah, I have friends at MSNBC who were on the verge of losing their jobs because nobody was watching their program. 
because why would you? Obama was treated as this kind of like quiet savior figure, which isn't very exciting. It doesn't make you tune in. Um, you need to get people revved up and angry in order to get them to watch cable news. And so Trump was the savior by being able to turn him into this kind of like existential threat to the republic. And so there is a real monetary and career incentive to wildly exaggerate the threat that he poses. Um, that's number one. You're absolutely right. It was It's become a, a huge profit model for media um, to pretend that they're kind of on the front lines of you know, this unprecedented assault on democracy by this fascist dictator. You see the rhetoric escalating now. They're essentially treating him almost like a, a like a, as a Hitler figure. But I also think, you know, there's that cynical motive, which is we make more money getting people afraid, afraid and revved up with adrenaline. But I think that like one of the things that has happened, which I find really disturbing, is that because journalists spend so much of their time on social media now, there's so much of an incentive to ignore nuance. Nuance gets you canceled on social media or at least ignored. What gets you attention on social media, what gets you applause from your colleagues is maximalist rhetoric. And I think that when you stay on social media for long enough time, as they do, they start, it's kind of like a one of the most potent weapons of groupthink ever invented. So if you keep hearing enough times that Trump is Hitler, even though there's a cynical motive to say it, which is that people will watch your show or donate to your blog or follow you on Twitter. I think there's also like almost a sincere, it's like a, a, a collective mania that takes place um, that they keep feeding on one another and making themselves increasingly un more unhinged. Every well, and day. then there's I no, there's really no accountability. Disturbing. They pay no price. They get, they get financially rewarded for going after him nonstop, no matter how small the scandal, it will be inflated to an 11. I mean, Russiagate is the best example of that, but there's no accountability. You know, like, look at Rachel Maddow, what she did during Russiagate. And now it's like, no, didn't happen. Move on. She, she went on every night and, like, talked about the Steele dossier as though it were real, which everybody knows is a fraud. Every, it was obvious from the beginning it was a fraud, that it became increasingly obvious and she continued to push it, which is, you know, like, essentially a document that says that this foreign power has taken over and infiltrated American institutions. Not only that, every single completely unhinged conspiracy theory that can, like, really generate hysteria among the population about a nuclear power in Moscow she promoted, I mean, she went on one night practically in tears, claimed that Russia had seized control of the heating system of the United States at a time when it was like negative 40 degrees in Fargo. And she was like, what would you and your family do if the Kremlin shut off the heat when it was negative 40 degrees? You know, just the kind, it's almost like Alex Jones or QAnon level conspiracies, but because it's serving an agenda that the mainstream press has decided is just. Exactly. People are willing to overlook it. Not only is there no accountability, there's just lots of benefits. She's become, you know, her ratings just went through the roof the more she fed her audience unhinged conspiracy theories. Yeah. I mean, I I used to be at nine on Fox and she was at, at nine on MSNBC and we crushed her all the time. She never once took a month off of me. But, but we did have an adherence to fact on the show, good or bad for Republicans, good or bad for Democrats. And I, I see what I see now and I confess I don't watch her show. I just see some clips from them is just freewheeling. If it's bad for him, it gets on air. That's it. If it's bad for Trump, it gets on air. And and if you're a reporter or a fact witness who has a different story to tell, you get no airtime. And speaking of Lawrence O'Donnell, he tweeted out 
not long ago that anyone defending Trump, and I think it was on, it was either on Russia Gate or Ukraine, anyone defending Trump is a liar, and liars aren't welcome on MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or you know, or you're either a liar and or a racist. You know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I've experienced personally because I used to be really good friends with Rachel Maddow um, before she got her MSNBC show when she was. On Air America, we used to go on all the time. We used to bash the Democrats from the left um, about how they were kind of a fraudulent political party. She's very, very smart. Um, and same with Chris Hayes, who's been a longtime friend of mine, who has a theater talk show on, on MSNBC, thanks to Trump. Um, and I used to go on their both of their shows all the time, all the time, um, uh, you know, to kind of feed the audience whatever they felt like they wanted to have them fed. And then once I became a critic of Russiagate, it just, I basically got banned from the network, especially because they became a critic of their coverage of it. Crickets. And I find that so interesting because I know, like, I, you know, I didn't, I'd never watched like any cable show constantly, but like I would see your show and I know that you would love one of the things you like best, probably because of your lawyer background, probably because of your personality, is you would like to invite people on your show who were, had an opinion different than yours so that you could kick the tires on the underlying rationale, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's so boring to just have people on constantly affirming your own assumptions about the world. Right. And they you learn nothing. Backballed anyone who was a critic, like everybody who's a critic. And that's why they created this echo chamber. Do you, are you saying you've been banned from MSNBC? Yeah, I'm totally. I'm like formally banned, you know, like How I do you was know? first effectively banned. Because I know I have tons of friends there. I used to go on all the time. Like I have producers who tried to book me and they get told, no, he's on the no book list. And that's not even for, that's that's for your opinion that they covered Russiagate wrong, which isn't even, that's an, that's a fact at this point. It, yeah, it's for my dissent on Russiagate. Exactly. And like, and, and, and you know, the thing is, there were other journalists um, dissenting on Russiagate, you know, with a lot of accomplishments and credentials, like, for example, Matt Taibbi, who is a longtime popular journalist from Rolling Stone, who did amazing work on the 2008 financial crisis. He was beloved by liberals on the left, but he lived in Russia for, I think, a decade or so, speaks the language and understood from the start that this was all hysteria about Putin and Moscow and the Kremlin and said so when he got banned. I don't think he's been on MSNBC in about five years either. Um that's what amazes me, not just that there's this prevailing orthodoxy, but that they will never allow anyone to question or challenge them exactly because what Lauren Sadonald said, if you at all are perceived as defending Trump, even if you don't like Trump ideologically or personally, but if you say anything that pushes back against whatever anti-Trump narrative has been concocted, you're a liar and a racist and therefore not welcome in good company. Right, it's because really not only do they have to say your point of view is wrong, i.e. you're a liar, it's you are a bad person, which the left just does all the time. You have to be completely discredited as a human. It's not just viewpoint. It's racist, bigot, sexist, xenophobe. What, you know, take your pick. They all work. Um, what about CNN? Did, did they let you on? Um, it's, 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 CNN has become pretty similar to MSNBC. Um, I think the last time I was invited to CNN was earlier this year when I was indicted by the Bolsonaro government for the reporting I was doing um, on Brian Stelter's show, and I ended up not going on. But I don't think so. I don't, I'm not banned from there. Um, but they very rarely have and there either. Um, I don't know. When's the last time you heard somebody on there defending President Trump or questioning the Russiagate narrative? CNN has reached out to me to have me on, and I've said no every time. But 
the, the times they reach out to me, they want me to rip on Trump. I mean, it's like, oh, Trump did something right. to a woman. Right. Who should right. we get? Megyn Kelly. I have no desire to to play the role they want me to play. It's like, look, if Trump said something controversial, you can talk about it. I'm happy to talk about it. But there's a reason they came to somebody like me. And that's when they, you know, they, they think I'm going to do what they you know, need the puppet to do. Right. They want you to be their little dancing conservative bear who, you know, like abuses their audience while you criticize Trump. And that's it's so interesting. Exactly. That's the only time they'll call. So now they fear you because you're you founded The Intercept in 2013, which is amazing. You guys I love your reporting. It's so interesting to read all of your reporters, too. And you're officially on the outside. I mean, you're you're in, you're a place where I I also feel that I am now, you know, now that I, I'm sort of free. I'm outside of the conservative and the, and the traditional media, which I like. But you are you've been there for a while and you've been sort of poking and prodding them. And I thought you had a really interesting point earlier this week. It was a column I read um, about how this is why they're also turning on Joe Rogan, because he should be somebody they like. He's he's a liberal. You know, he he's not woke, but on most things, he's more progressive, but they can't stand him. And I think you tell me, but I think it's because he's not of them. He's not beholden to them. He's not going to kiss the ring. And he's extremely powerful and successful now. The resentment really came to the fore when there was a suggestion by one of Rogan's guests that Rogan host a debate, a presidential debate, which is kind of like, as you know, the most prestigious thing in media that you can do in a presidential election year. And Trump was excited by it, probably taunting Biden, knowing he would never do it, saying, I would love to do it. And the media acted like, you know, they had kind of asked just some like, random homeless person to come into their <laughs> glittery realm and 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 vandalize it with their their filth and you know rogan has a way bigger audience than any of they them have yeah um and obviously there's a lot of resentment there's a lot of professional jealousy but i really think what it is more than anything is kind of like this prioritization of culture over politics i think like one of the things that a lot of people on the right don't fully understand is that establishment liberals, you know, like kind of the dominant wing of the Democratic Party, they don't actually care about politics. They're not socialists. They serve the interest of Silicon Valley and Wall Street and K Street um, and their rich donors. They're, they're not at all socialists. Most of them themselves are extremely rich from wealthy families. Um, they may use some rhetoric that's populist in nature, but populism exists far more on the right than it does on, on the establishment of the Democratic Party. They don't really care about politics. They're also not against war or imperialism. Obama started lots of different wars. Trump hasn't. Um, what they care about is culture, dominating the culture. And the reason they look at Joe Rogan and see an enemy, even though if you go down the list, he's pro-choice, he's pro-gay rights, he believes in social spending, he's anti-war. He endorsed he Bernie Sanders. He of drugs. He endorsed Bernie Sanders. He <laughs> you knows exactly. Even though, so why did they see an enemy? When, because they don't care about politics, they care about culture. And Rogan is not, he doesn't sound like them, right? He's like a regular guy. He like talks in regular jargon. He likes hunting and MMA fighting. He tells like some risque jokes. So to them, he's like an interloper culturally. And that's what they care about more than politics. And that's why I think the, like the contempt for Rogan 
among liberals in the media, which is sort of the same thing at this point, yes. is so revealing about what they prioritize. So what I did think it was interesting, just one more minute on him, that he signed this deal with Spotify and, and you know, made a bunch of money off of it. But already there's trouble, right? Like he had on Abigail Schreier, who wrote, Irre- so easy for me to say, Irreversible Damage, um, which takes a hard look at transgender teens and why it seems to be increasing in frequency. And they had a very thoughtful discussion. I thought it was fascinating. And I I read the book. And now there's a protest over there. They want the episode pulled. They want him pulled. They want him punished. And Spotify has reportedly had 10 meetings, not reportedly, the, the CEO confessed. They have they had 10 meetings about this. And I, it made me wonder, can Joe Rogan last at Spotify? Can this relationship last? Yeah, it's so fascinating. Um, you know, first of all, I look at it kind of through the prism a lot of the primary success of a social movement in my lifetime that affected my life most, which is the gay rights movement, you know, like uh, of age as a gay teenager in the eighties with the moral majority and and the Reagan era, no one thought anything like gay marriage was even remotely possible, let alone the full panoply of legal rights. And with my lifetime that has happened. And one of the reasons it's happened is because so many people who wanted this profound social change engaged in the debate, right? Like said, Hey, like you have these ideas about who I am, what my life is like that aren't actually true. So get to know me, talk to me. I understand that you were raised to think differently. You have religious convictions that lead you to a different place. Let's have a dialogue so that you can actually see the reality of our humanity. It wasn't this like coercive demand that everybody swallowed this truth. I'm not saying there were no elements of the gay rights movement that did that, but by and large, it was a, it was successful because it was persuasive. And now like around these, this trans issue, there's like almost this kind of demand that nobody ask any questions about these really profound changes that are being demanded about how we think about gender, how we think about sex, how we think about the choices of children to make permanent. And this is what I find so interesting. You know, I, I have this media outlet in that's based in New York. So I go a lot to New York and I, a lot of my colleagues are, you know, journalists who send their kids to very liberal private schools in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And a lot of their, their teenage children, their, a lot of their teenage children have friends who are trans. So like 15 year old trans boys who have already had their breasts removed at the age of 15 or you know, the other way of trans women who have had genital reassignment, sexual reassignment surgery involved in their genitals that are permanent changes that they're making at the age of 15 to 16. And if you talk to these journalists, they'll tell you at dinner over a glass of wine that they're very disturbed by the question that we don't really have a lot of science about, about whether kids are too young to be making these decisions about whether people are being misdiagnosed with gender dysphoria who actually have other problems in the culture is encouraging them to think that they're trans when they're like, people have those questions, people yes. in the privacy of their home, ask the questions that Joe Rogan asked, but those journalists would never, ever write about it or publicly say it because they're too scared to, they're too yep. beholden to liberal orthodoxy and Joe Rogan's not. And that's why they hate him because they can't control him. I mean, I know, I'm sure you can relate. I, I can definitely relate to that. I'm, I've always been somebody who will go there. You know, my old executive producer at at the Kelly file used to say, MK, you like to go to the place that hurts. And there's a reason for that. I, I like you believe there's no harm in having tough discussions and, you know, poking sort of spots that may be uncomfortable. And I also feel it's our job to be antagonistic 
towards the subjects and the, and the people we cover and to be skeptical that we get paid to be skeptical. And suddenly on certain issues this is one of the things that's driving me nuts about covering trans issues or covering Black Lives Matter is you're not allowed to be skeptical, skeptical. If you are skeptical, there's something wrong with you. You know, you're anti black people or you're anti LGBT, you know, trans people. That just isn't true. And it's alienating to people who would like to be an ally, right? But like to help in ways that are reasonable and that we can get on board with. You know, you don't you don't want to support racism, but you also don't support somebody going over to somebody's restaurant table in the middle of the evening and saying, you raise your fist right now and say BLM or else that it's baloney. Yeah. I mean, what is the purpose of of journalism if it doesn't challenge and question orthodoxies if all it's doing is kind of submitting to them and reciting them and echoing them um you know it's a very kind of authoritarian approach to say you can't actually question things and if you question things um we're gonna declare you off limits right mm-hmm. and i go back to you know again like the gay rights movement i remember you know like when i was 25 and 30 people would say you know there's something i really don't understand like how do two men or two women end up married or how do they have sex and like you know you could like you could easily if you wanted to just kind of scorn them and say you're a bigot you're you know hateful and and or you could say god i'm so happy for the opportunity that you want to have that discussion let's like talk about that and engage in that kind of debate and i think one of the things that has happened is exactly as you suggest which is that the kind of liberal left tactic to win debates is to bar them from happening um and it's very alienating to people who are prospective allies and you know it can work in the short term but i do think eventually it's going to drive a lot of people away because who wants to be part of a subculture or an ideology that says that you're required and forced upon pain of being condemned as a bad human to accept orthodoxies and pieties that you don't actually even understand, let alone yet agree with. So we're going to be doing some features on the show for you all, and we're going to call this one Real Talk. Uh, it's just a moment that happened in my life that I thought might be worth sharing. Uh, for the first time last week, I saw four of my best friends who I hadn't seen in six months. And let me tell you, it was glorious. We're all New Yorkers. We were last together on a ski vacation out in Montana in March. It was right before everything happened. And, you know, we didn't even know that there was going to be a quarantine. And we're all moms. We're all raising our kids together here. So we went six months, like most of us, without seeing each other. We had Zoom calls. You know, we actually played um, Flip Cup, you know, Flip Cup one time via Zoom, which is not ideal, but doable, interestingly. Um, And this is the first time at least four of our seven woman posse got together. And uh, I have to tell you, you know, you have to eat outside here in New York, like pretty much everywhere. And uh, as I walked up the sidewalk and saw them sitting there because I was last to arrive, they looked amazing that it was a beautiful night. There was a warm breeze. We had a couple of drinks and it was it was a feeling of freedom. You know, it was it was happiness. And just friendship, you know, seeing your friends face to face and you don't have to wear the mask at the table. Um, and it turns out one one is getting engaged. One is about to have a baby. So it was just I'm, I was launching this podcast. So we got to talk about that. It was just sometimes it's not like these huge events in your life that matter. It's just those little moments, right? Like a like an evening out with friends. So 
If you can make it happen, I recommend it. So one other thing that I wanted to tell you is that we're going to be answering your questions here. So if you have anything that you want to ask, uh, fire away. It can be personal. It can be professional. It can be about the news. It can be about the show. Um, whatever's on your mind. So the email to reach me is questions, plural, at devilmaycaremedia.com. Questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. And um, we'll get back to you on the show with our favorites and, you know, the ones that stand out to us. And, you know, hopefully we can keep it back and forth going, even if it's comments on the show and you want to follow up. Maybe I can run down some news for you. So that's how we can be in touch. Personally, the one, probably the, the greatest gift, the greatest positive thing to come out of my, you know, very negative ending at NBC was a freedom, you know, a liberation to just once you've been called awful things by every publication in the country, you know, that's run by these folks, you're free. You know, it's like, so I'm just going to talk honestly about these subjects. And what are you going to do? You're going to say something bad about me? Yet yeah, that's happened. You already fired that bullet and I'm good. So on we go. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I think um, one of the really interesting things is that if you look at the media ecosystem, you know, the kind of like economic structure of it, the outlets where you're forced to recite these orthodoxies upon pain of being fired are doing very poorly. If you look at who's thriving independently, um, it is people like Joe Rogue. You know, like Andrew Sullivan, for example, got forced out of his column at New York Magazine because a lot of the millennials at New York Magazine thought he was a white supremacist, think that he's a racist, think that he can't, doesn't deserve to be in decent company. And he went on Substack and his audience followed him. And I think he tripled or quadrupled his income. That's happening over and over. Same thing with Matt Taibbi, who kind of got forced out of Rolling Stone and now is making way more money than he was ever making at Rolling Stone. The, the podcasts that are doing well are the ones who refuse to be captive to this um these pieties so there's a hunger for people to say i'm kind of free from it and you are right mm -hmm. exactly as you said what else can they do to you no nothing I else wonder just while we're i wonder the like why we're on that topic like do you because the way like that it all kind of played out was you know you you made your comments about blackface i was explaining it to my husband he's brazilian as we were preparing to do this show and i was saying like she was kind of like just asking why it is that it always has to be viewed as malicious. Like, is there a way that you could do something like that non-maliciously? Like you, you know, adore a black celebrity, a black athlete, a black actor. Yeah, and does I, intent you know, matter? Does intent matter? Exactly. You were trying to ask that question. Um, I do wonder, like, do you regret kind of apologizing for it? Um, or do you feel like your apology was justified because for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, people were hurt by the comments and you feel like an apology is justified if people are hurt? You know, that's a really good question. And I've asked myself that many times. I think I'm, I'm not I'm not sorry that I said sorry, um, because I do think some people, especially people who had just been reading the media interpretation of what I said, which was they presented it as though I was defending minstrel show blackface and wanted it to return to the airwaves immediately, you know, which wasn't anywhere close to the truth. I was just trying to start a discussion because I had noticed when I was a kid, and as it turns out, very recently prior to my remarks, people were wearing blackface. This, you know, this, whether it was as an homage or otherwise, they were wearing it. And as it turns out, NBC itself was putting out at least five different shows as recently as a couple of years before my discussion about it with characters in blackface. So I think it was a good discussion to try to start. 
Um, so I don't, if people misunderstood the point I was trying to make, I think it's, I've, I've usually been quick to apologize as opposed to just, you know, stand in my, in my principle and say, you misunderstood me and you, no one gets it. However, I also think I made the mistake of believing that most of my critics were coming to me in good faith. And what I've seen since then is that wasn't true. They were on the war path from you from the beginning. They saw you as somebody who didn't, who shouldn't have been there. And not just, not just them, but I mean, look at the media, you know, look at even just, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, Joy Behar was on The View. Now she, unlike yours truly, has actually worn blackface. And she was defending it by saying, well, it wasn't really blackface because I meant it as an homage. Well, Glenn, that's exactly what I was trying to ask. Would that make a right. difference? I, that, right. Would that make a difference? I didn't say, yes, it would. And, and we should all be doing that. I said, would it? And, you know, all hell broke loose. So I, I sent out a tweet saying, gee, I, you know, she should be careful because even asking whether intent matters can get you on the New York Times and uh, the Washington Post, and it can get you on nightly news on NBC and World News Tonight on ABC and GMA, which ran several stories about it. And I just wonder whether GMA and World News Tonight are going to cover their own host, um, either Jimmy Kimmel, who wore it repeatedly, or, or Joy Behar. And guess what? Bob kiss. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that was a rhetorical question from the start. Yeah. You kind of knew the answer. My only point is that, is that there there was no good faith by the media outlets covering it and by the vast majority of critics who just wanted, you know, a scalp. I think people see that, you know, um, you know, media, the media loves to whine very sanctimoniously about the fact that no one trusts them. People turn to fake news sites. They've been taught to look at media outlets as fake news. People have lost trust and faith in authoritative media outlets, and there's no self-reflection about why. Um, it's always someone else's fault. It's always they're the unjust victims of a defamation campaign. And I think that, you know, when they do something like this year, I think the most egregious example was they were shaming everybody who stepped out of their house for to go to church, to have a funeral, to do a political rally that had a cause that they didn't agree with. They were denounced as being selfish, as killing grandma. And then suddenly these Black Lives Matter protests broke out all over the country where tens of thousands of people were packed in extremely dense crowds, one on top of the other, at exactly the moment where the pandemic was at its peak. And everybody in the media not only was afraid to condemn it or denounce it or shame it the way they had been doing for other gatherings that they didn't like, but they were praising it, saying that it's actually justified from a public. And I think people see the yes. fraudulent nature of that, you know, They're smart. That, they don't believe, yeah. unlike the media, that the virus knows whether you're there to support Trump or to say BLM or for that matter, to mourn Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They they know the virus does not discriminate in that manner. Right. Epidemiologically, the virus does not enter your body if it decides that you're supporting a right wing cause as opposed to a left wing cause. No, it's honestly, I was uh, it was right around the time all those protests and I was in the grocery store. And I, I had headphones on and I had sunglasses on. And so I kind of had the feel that my mask was still on me. And it wasn't. I had forgotten it in my pocket. And I, for a second there, I was like, oh, my God, I, I don't have my mask on me. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of looks. And I, I, I was like, oh, Black Lives Matter. And they were like, oh, you go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It entitles you to do anything. Just uh, totally. there's no, uh, all the limits are, are, are abolished instantly. All right. So I got to ask you before I let you go, we got to talk about the election. I'm, I'm dying to know, because I know you're not, you're not big on voting. And I'm just going to guess you're not going to support. I mean, Trump's done some things you like, but like, I know you were a Bernie guy. So who, who are you going to vote for? 
How are you going to share that? If you were going to vote, who would you support? Yeah, I mean, I I end up not voting just for the standard journalistic reason. It's like one of the few traditional journalism precepts that I end up believing in, that if you do vote, you kind of even psychologically attach yourself to a candidate in a way that can affect your independence. I prefer mm. not to, you know, be a supporter of anyone because I want to remain skeptical and adversarial to anyone who wields power. Um and I also think there's something a little pompous about like announcing my vote, like I'm endorsing somebody or yeah. encouraging somebody to vote. I prefer to just give people information that they can use to make their own decisions about who to vote for. Um, but what I absolutely do reject is the prevailing liberal discourse that looks at Trump as some sort of grave threat to the republic, as some kind of, you know, I think Trump is much more of a continuation of the American political tradition than he is a departure or aberration from it, except, you know, in these kind of like rhetorical and stylistic ways where he's obviously different. Um, so I don't accept this, you know, uh, sort of melodramatic proclamation that this is the gravest and most important election in the history of the United States or democracy is on the line. Um, you know, I think that each candidate is better in some ways and, and in worse than others. Mm -hmm. Do you, the, the thing about Biden that everybody talks about is whether he's all there. You know, I mean, I, I feel like as a matter of factual reporting, you cannot deny that he he's in cognitive decline. I don't I think it's OK to talk about. And I think it's pretty clear. Um, there was a there was there was an exchange like it was just a couple of weeks ago that I thought really sort of put a point on it. I'm going to play it and you can react after. Because if you could take care, if you were a quartermaster, you can sure and help take care of running a, you know, a department store uh, thing, you know, where in the second floor of the ladies department or whatever, you know what I mean? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, it's honestly sad, you know, and this, this is so interesting, Megan, because as you probably recall, the primary um, in the Democratic Party came down to Biden and Bernie. And so those of us in the media who started when Biden was one of the two only last standing choices were raising this issue of cognitive decline. And a lot of the people who are kind of the guardians of the Democratic Party were saying this is such a low life you know, um, below the belt tactic to raise this. About. And then I went back and I looked and what I saw was that through all of 2018 and 2019, the people who were most disseminating this narrative about Biden were the Democratic establishment. They were petrified that he was way in the lead, that he was by far the biggest, uh, most known candidate. And they didn't believe that he had the capacity to endure the grueling rigors of an election. And you can find on Morning Joe and on every MSNBC show and CNN show, Democratic, you know, operatives, strategists, consultants saying, I don't think Biden has the mental capacity any longer to run a campaign. It was Cory Booker and Julian Castro in the debate who like essentially mocked him for forgetting what he had said just like moments earlier. They're the ones who raised those issues right. because they were petrified that Biden was going to become the nominee and be so obviously incapable. What saved him is the, the COVID pandemic, like that he gets to just stay in his basement. Totally. And everyone kind of understands that's the best thing that ever happened to him. But he's so obviously in cognitive decline. Like we all recognize it in our elderly relatives in people that it's sad to see. Right. So well, to it's one thing if it's your elderly relative, like all my mom has to do is like send out the electric bill once a month. But Joe Biden's going to have access to the nuclear codes. And, and like decisions about whether to start war and who to appoint. Like the thing is, it, what's, what's really hilarious is if you watch how MSNBC hosts interview him, 
because like that's the only place that he'll basically go at this point. Like Nicole Wallace, I think was the first. She talked to him in the most like patronizing voice. You know that like soft, sweet voice that you use for like elderly grandparents who are ailing in a nursing home. You're like, hi, grandpa. Oh, Oh, and like you would fake laugh at all their jokes. That's how she treated him. Like everyone knows it, but we're all supposed to just like pretend it's not happening. Well, to your point earlier, she's openly declared that she's not going to vote for Trump and she's going to vote for him. So talk about I don't know whether this is a straight news journalist or, you know, she's trying to even pretend to be or what. But, you know, I, I don't think a journalist should be declaring who they're voting for if they're voting. And, um, you know, she's sort of shown her cards in a way that was pretty surprising to me when she did it. But let me ask you this, because speaking of the media and Biden, you guys are the ones your reporter, Ryan Grimm, is the one who broke the Tara Reid story um, as Joe Biden's accuser that he he was sort of following her Twitter and he repeated some of the things she said and wrote an article. And I was like, what? And then she went on um, on. Was it Katie Herzog's show? Um, yeah, uh, Katie Halper. Sorry. So, yeah, Katie, Katie Halper's show. Then she went on Katie Halper's show. So um, I feel like the media has done its level best to run cover for him on the Tara Reid story, whether you believe Tara Reid or you don't. The way they've treated those allegations versus the way they treated the allegations against Trump and against Brett Kavanaugh is starkly different. That was always my issue, right? Like what, what happened was Ryan got wind of this and we didn't want to get behind it as a news story saying here's an accuser because we couldn't tell whether or not it was true. And we didn't want to give our journalistic imprimatur to these allegations without any evidence about whether that's true. That's journalistically wrong to do, notwithstanding what was done to Trump and Brett Kavanaugh. So what Ryan decided to do instead was to report it from the hypocrisy angle that she had gone, Tara Reid did, to Time's Up, that Hollywood-based uh, advocacy group for sexual assault victims and asked them to represent her. And they've done this in a thousand cases. And of course they didn't want to do it because they want Biden to win. So they concocted this bullshit explanation, uh, excuse about why they weren't going to represent her, which is, oh, we're a 501c3 group and we can't get involved in elections. But all you're not allowed to do if you're a 501c3 group is advocate for a candidate explicitly. It was such an obvious pretext to avoid doing it. So he reported that. And and the irony of that, Glenn. So my issue always was, it was never, I never, it was never, I believe terror. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the irony of that is that so in their in their purported attempt to not take a side to not, you know, back one candidate or the other is, of course, they were just running cover for Biden because it turns out Anita Dunn um, is who's running PR for him uh, is running PR for Time's Up. Her firm is, you know, senior counsel to or advisor to Time's Up and which, you know, I'm sure Tara Reid had no idea of when she got rejected. And she Anita Dunn was also the primary public relations advisor for Harvey Weinstein. So the whole edifice is based on like such a weaponization of this issue for cynical and exploitative reasons. And that was always my issue was not, I believe Tara Reid because how can I believe Tara Reid, right? She has claims that she made about what happened in a hallway in the Senate 20 years ago, which Biden denies. I have no rational basis for adjudicating who I believe or who I don't believe. What I, found so objectionable was that the standards that have been promulgated under the phrase believe women that got applied to why we should all believe Christine Blasey Ford, even though there was just as little corroborating evidence for her allegations Mm -hmm. and Brett Kavanaugh denied it just as vehemently, 
you have to have consistent standards for how this is treated. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to make everybody cease to take allegations of sexual harassment seriously if you just start weaponizing it in this flagrantly cynical way for your own partisan benefit. And that's exactly what has been done. Tara Reid has more evidence on her side than Christine Blasey Ford had by any standard. Christine Blasey Ford did not have a witness to whom she recounted this alleged incident within days 30 years ago. That's what Tara Reid has. She's got a witness, a very credible, professional uh, family woman who's from the Southeast, who I spoke with at length, and so have the other journalists looking into this, who remembers distinctly, and she's got a neighbor she told two years after that, and she's got a third person she told shortly after that, and she's got her mother, you guys broke this too, her mother calling into Larry King saying her daughter's been harassed. Now that could have meant anything, so that's not as persuasive. But she's got way more. And they're like, mm, you know, that's not that interesting, but could we talk about Brett Kavanaugh's gang rape again? It's like totally made up lies. I mean, they, they, like the media during the Brett Kavanaugh, they not only promoted Christy Blasey Ford, but people forget this. You can go back. They promoted Michael Avenatti's thing with Julie Swetnick. Rachel Maddow, I found the video during the Tara Reid controversy, was so excited to announce that she had gotten Michael Avenatti an exclusive interview for him to talk about Julie Swetnick's gang rape charges and put that on the air. And... You know, I think um, the other thing I think it gets back to, though, of course, there's like the partisan angle, which is people wanted to believe Christine Blasey Ford because they wanted to stop Brett Kavanaugh from getting appointed to the court and discredit Tara Reid because she's accusing Joe Biden. There's that angle, obviously. But there's also that same cultural angle that we talked about with Joe Rogan, which is look at Tara Reid and look at Christine Blasey Ford. Christine Blasey Ford is this well-groomed, upper-middle-class woman with a PhD. She's like in the like, exactly the kind of cultural milieu that coastal liberals love and identify with. Whereas Tara Reid is more similar to like the Bill Clinton accusers like Paula Jones um, and Juanita Broderick and those kind of people who, you know, as James Carville famously said, drag a $10 bill through a trailer park and you can pretty much find anything. So I think a lot of it is that cultural bias that comes back again that what matters most is are you a cultural liberal, somebody with whom they identify or are you this kind of like – icky working class person who exudes middle of the country vibes and that determines so much of how you're evaluated as a human being by our media culture well boy did they misjudge tara because she up until now was a pretty committed progressive and um you know clearly has rethought that commitment in the wake of what has been done to her but it's up to the audience to figure out whether she's being truthful or not if you want to see i did a lengthy interview with her you can go check it out on youtube all right final question So where do we go from here? We have a disgusting media (laughs) that's incredibly broken. What do we do with it? It, Does it survive? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we tried to do in 2013 when we created The Intercept was to kind of create a a media outlet that could be trusted across the political spectrum, that even if we had political ideologies, we would be open about them, but we would do reporting regardless of where it took us. And to me, I think that has to be And I'm not saying we fulfilled that as much as I would have liked. I think we still have work to do, but I I still think that's the model. And I think there is a really underappreciated craving in the public for journalists who can be trusted that way, who can report on things in a way that will contradict or undermine what their political ideology is might be without trying to deceive and manipulate them. 
And I think the internet enables independent media to thrive. Um, I mean, again, you look at Joe Rogan's platform, like we all ignore it in the media and the mainstream media, but he's talking to 15 million people and not just 15 million people, but like 15 million people who aren't committed partisans who can go one way or the other, which is a lot more valuable than an audience of 5 million who are squarely in one camp or the other. Um, so I think that there's a lot of kind of undercurrents that this dissatisfaction with the media is giving rise to um, this independent ecosystem that can reach a lot of people. And obviously like that dynamic that you're talking about is one I feel myself, which is a lot of times like when I feel myself getting ejected from you know, or expelled from decent mainstream precincts. It's so liberating, right? It's so emboldening if you like wake up the next day and you're not like homeless and you say, okay, I survived that. I don't actually need them. Now I can go speak really freely, you know, as you described. Um, And I think that the more people they alienate that way, the more people they turn against them, which is always what these kind of insular authoritarian cultures do the more people they're going to kind of create their own adversaries, their own enemies. And I think that is where I find my optimism is this kind of like counter backlash that they're creating just through their own repellent behavior. Amen. And our thanks to the fascinating and fearless Glenn Greenwald. In the meantime, we'll talk to you next time on the next Megyn Kelly show, which will be released on Wednesday after the first presidential debate. And we're going to have some thoughts You can find The Megyn Kelly Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please subscribe. You can download the podcast, rate it, review it, five stars, of course. Uh, And then go and spread the word. Send the Apple Podcast link to others who might want to subscribe, who you think will like it, and even those who you think might hate listen to it. Uh, Or if Apple Podcasts is not your thing, you can go to Spotify, Google, iHeart, TuneIn, or wherever you may listen to podcasts. You can find us for free. For free. What a deal. We appreciate you being with us. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megyn Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.